you very much, Polly. Um, keep Titus 3 nearby. We're going to come back there, but I might even get you to look at it in the Bible. I have four notices to give, and it was very nice of Polly to remind me. This is a reminder as well. This is in the pulpit from the 930 service. It's an omelette pan, but it's here to, to double up as a, a reminder of pancakes on Tuesday in the North Building at 5 o'clock. And I'm mentioning it at this service because... Um, I think they need us there from the 11 o'clock service. If you're able to join us for the pancake party, it's not kids only. We want it to be multi-generational. It it was great fun last year, and you'd be very welcome to come, 5 to 6.30 on Tuesday. It means that um, the following day is the start of Lent Ash Wednesday. There will be a communion service, God willing, uh, on Wednesday afternoon, 2 p.m. in church. Uh, There's a normal home group meeting at that time each week, and we are glad to invite you to join us in church for Ash Wednesday Communion this coming Wednesday. Two other, three other, four other things to highlight. February the 23rd, Women Together on a Friday night, they'll be looking at a a recording of the uh, talk on how to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world that Christopher Ash gave recently, February the 23rd, uh, a Friday evening. February the 27th, Kaleidoscope this month will be happening in church. So Tuesday, February the 27th, at I think a slightly later time than usual, 11 a.m., uh, to mark an anniversary. David's looking quietly down at his um, service sheet so that he doesn't catch my eye to celebrate 50 years of David being the organist at All Saints. So um, Kaleidoscope will incorporate that occasion. I think there's lunch afterwards as well, so we'd be glad to hear from you if you're keen to come to that so that we get the right amount of um, edibles for that occasion. But uh, make a mental note of that. And again, it, I want maximum uh, coverage for that uh, event so that uh, it's not just Kaleidoscope regulars. Others feel that they're warmly invited to it. The church weekend away is less than three weeks away now, March the 1st to the 3rd. Um, so there will be a service on the 3rd of March in the morning here, but uh, some of the regulars will be away down at High Lee, uh, just to make a mental note of that um, happening then. And I've put down here just the 29th, this is right at the end of Lent, Good Friday, just to mention that um, on Good Friday in the evening... Precise details, TBC, in the Memorial Hall in Little Shelford, will be sharing a movie called Against the Tide. This is a a John Lennox, uh, an Oxford University mathematician film that has been seen, I think, by a number of people in Cambridge recently. Um, Liz Halliday and um, Catherine Leckie were at that showing back before Christmas and thought, this has got to be repeated in the provinces. We've got to do this in Little Shelford and open it up to others. Perfect for, I suppose, secondary school level and upwards, but adults come if you want to, the case to be made about how in a, a heavily scientific world it is possible for Christians to hold on to their faith and uh, be strengthened by what we discover in the scientific world. Let's not make those two enemies their friends. That's the contention of the film, and uh, I think um, Bob White, wave a hand and, t- and tell me it's a good film. Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, that'll be happening. Good to invite people to, good to strengthen your own relationship with God in. 29th of March, Good Friday, in the evening, in the Memorial Hall, bring a friend. Popcorn provided, Liz Halliday told me to say. Okay? Um, there'll be more about it. There's a video we can see about the video, which will be really exciting, I'm sure. Okay, that's the end of the notices. Let's keep going, shall we? Um, I've got a question to, to set you to start with. I don't know if this is a within bounds to do this as a question. What would you describe as the overarching ambition of your life? And I suppose it might depend on all sorts of different things, how you answered, how old you are to start with, for one thing, uh, maybe how much you have already achieved in life in your estimation, and what there is left to achieve, therefore. But what is the great goal of your life, do you think? There was a time when uh, one of the great Christian leaders of last century was asked a similar question. His name was John Stott. John Stott, if you've heard of him, died at a good old age about five or ten years ago now. And he was what you might call a ten-talent individual. Very, very able, charismatic, and attractive as a personality. Uh, There was a time when he was being quizzed by a hard-nosed TV interviewer in Chicago in the 70s. And the question went like this, Mr. Stott, you've had a brilliant academic career, a double first at Cambridge University. You were rector of All Souls Church, Langham Place, at the age of 29, very young to be in that sort of leadership post, chaplain to the Queen, best-selling author of multiple books. So I want to ask you, what is your ambition now? In other words, the question behind the question was, what do you still want to achieve in life with all those achievements listed after your name? And John Stott's reply was striking, just five words. To be more like Jesus is what he said. I think that got refined as the years go by. If you're in the public eye as as a Christian leader, you obviously get the same questions coming back. He refined it slightly so that he just had an auto press in his mind when he was asked that question, what do you want to achieve in life? But it it got refined slightly to to be a little more like Jesus, which is lovely and humble as a way of putting it. But I wonder if you could echo that longing for yourself, that that's your ambition, your number one goal, to be more like Jesus Christ. We're at the halfway point in our sermon series looking at the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul describes it in Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and today, kindness, and next week, goodness, then faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And they're very familiar words, uh, almost too familiar, you might say. But one way, perhaps, of freshening them up in our thinking is to recast the verses as a description of Jesus Christ, his character is loving, joyful, peaceable. In fact, he is love, joy, peace incarnate. Patience, kindness, goodness incarnate. Jesus was, is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in action. So he showed in his life exactly this fruit And here's the encouragement for us today. By the Spirit of Christ, it's within reach for human beings to live this way today. 
Jesus himself has done so. And he can produce the same harvest of righteousness in us. We can be a little more like Christ. So let me read over the fruit again slowly and invite you just to consider it as a pen portrait of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, I think as soon as we see them as a portrait of Christ and his wonderful character, straight away that scotches the idea that we might pick and choose our favorites from among those characteristics and then quietly discard the other ones. Like the exam setter who was reading the Ten Commandments in church one Sunday and who said without thinking at the end of the reading, not more than three of these are to be attempted. And we do something similar with the fruit of the Spirit. We choose the ones we think we will most easily manage, and we skip the rest. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they're not just nine loosely related virtues, but one integrated character seen supremely in the spirit-filled life of Jesus Christ. And for followers of Christ... They're not vague aspirations, but a real goal for our own character, fruit, singular. So we don't select those fruits which we think we might produce easily enough and major on them, nor do we add the individual qualities onto each other one by one. They are all to be growing, all the time, if we're to become more like Christ. And if today we focus on one aspect of this crop, I'm just waiting for somebody to tell me that we shouldn't have done the whole series, is flawed in its outlook, okay? But if we are focusing on one aspect of this crop which God wants to grow in our lives, kindness, well, we shouldn't really separate it out completely from the others, and we cannot separate it from Jesus Christ, the one who more than anyone else exemplified human life, lived at its wonderful most beautiful, best. Now, all of that is by way of introduction as we turn to Titus chapter 3. I'd love you to have a sight of it in the Bible. Um, If you've got one, a church Bible or an electronic version of it nearby, Titus chapter 3. I think it's in the 90s, is it? 1190... 11.99, there we go. I think we've sung a a prayer, but I'm going to pray as we turn to this reading again. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, cause your word to come alive in me. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. We pray, Father, for that to happen by your Spirit's work in us as we turn to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Titus chapter 3 we had as our promise of forgiveness, but let's look in this uh, little section uh, from verse 3 onwards at the kindness we don't naturally have, or the kindness that's absent from us by nature 
And I want to read verse 3 again. At one time, says the Apostle Paul, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So that's what we are by nature, every one of us. We too, says Paul, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, mentally and morally depraved, as he describes it there. Uh, Living for ourselves, we were ruled by our own standards and choices alone. We're at the beck and call of our own egos. We reckon ourselves so important, but as somebody once put it, a person wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. And look at the end, uh, the end result, in terms of the relational damage which follows. You think about it, this is logical, isn't it? If our planet is populated by 8 billion people and each one of them thinks they're the center of the universe, it's not a happy situation, is it? We lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another. That's where we live. That's the way he describes it, our permanent address by nature. So you've got these ugly twin sisters, malice and envy, um, wishing people evil, that's malice, and resenting their good, that's envy, which, of course, happens so easily. It's not just a, a British characteristic. This He's saying this is... Humanity and sin. Somebody enjoys some blessing we don't have and we immediately resent it and resent them. My wife Susu often reminds me that a blessing shown to somebody else is not to be interpreted as a curse on me. But I think by nature that's the way we're often inclined to think, isn't it? Somebody has a blessing that I wish I had. I assume I'm cursed by God because I don't have it. Rather than rejoicing in the good thing they have. By nature, I'll often view it that way, and that's the natural tendency of us all. That is the kindness we don't naturally have. And it was very helpful. I don't know, Polly, how you came to the conclusion that it would be good to read that. It was really helpful to read Titus 3 almost as a confession part two, wasn't it, at the start of the service? But I wonder if you're willing to acknowledge that that describes you, not just somebody else you can think of, Have you got to the point of accurate self-knowledge where you're willing to say, I was once foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. I lived in malice and envy, hated and hating. That describes me, Simon Scott, by nature. Because if the Apostle Paul is willing to include himself in this description, it must include me. And if I haven't, ever acknowledge that and that I'll have a natural tendency to be like that even today well the Bible will say to us do not pass go don't collect 200 pounds you haven't even begun you haven't made a start yet so that is the kindness we don't have where we must begin our little look at this topic today But the good news is that even with that absence of kindness, I am not beyond the reach of a kind and compassionate God. So let me read on in verse 4. But when the kindness 
and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So here's the good news, isn't it? Our salvation is a result of what is in God's heart, not what's in ours. The kindness is absent from our heart by nature, but it is there and always has been in his. So he is that way, in fact, to everyone. Uh, You might have missed this. There's no reason you would necessarily have spotted, but uh, I discovered this week that um, that word kindness in verse 4 is paired with a rather special word for love there. Um, See, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appears, it's a special word. It's the word from which we get philanthropy, literally, love for human beings, or love for humanity, a love for everyone, simply by virtue of the fact that they are human beings. God is like that. His love is that way inclined. Now, Jesus himself defined God's kindness in just that way in Luke chapter 6. He said that his followers should love their enemies and lend to people without expecting to be repaid as children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. And that sort of teaching gets amplified in the Sermon on the Mount where it says he loves us as his creatures irrespective of whether we are lovable. We aren't. He causes the sun to shine, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's kind to all of us simply by virtue of our humanity, that we're made in his image. That's the way God has always been. And then there was the time when that kindness took on human flesh and appeared, which is the lovely word that's used in chapter 3, isn't it? Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. It must be referring to Jesus, surely. That was when we saw kindness on the street, touching the leper, welcoming the outcast, eating with a Pharisee one moment and a tax collector the next, and loving them both. Then kindness supremely in his saving work. That's mentioned as well, isn't it? Dying on the cross for us when we are haters, not waiting for us to tidy up our lives, but coming right down to our level, taking our sin onto himself as if he committed those sins himself. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That is kindness appearing in history, kindness incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ and supremely in his life and then his death. I think we've got quite a short service today, so I'm going to put you to work to talk to your neighbor. If you haven't said anything to them yet, you can greet them, trade names if you don't know their names, and ask yourself this. I've got a question for you to discuss for a couple of minutes. How has God been kind to you? And don't cheat and just read out verse 4. Um, Just ponder that and just uh, bash it around if you're happy to do that. If you prefer to sit quietly and just pray, shut your eyes and ignore the person sitting next to you. But if you want to talk, that's a question to ponder. How has God been kind to you? Okay?
Okay, you can come back to that question over coffee if you want. I think I could have phrased it better. In what ways has God been kind to you? Might have been an easier way of phrasing it all. Can you think of instances of God's kindness towards you? So what have we done? We've traveled a bit of, a bit of the way through the passage, I think. Um, the kindness that's absent, where we are naturally without kindness... The kindness that appeared in the Lord Jesus supremely. On to a final heading, kindness recreated. You might even, if you want an A, kindness applied or reapplied in our lives. Let me read on from the uh, last sentence of verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. And verse um, 7 and 8 are going to be bonus verses, okay? So if you think about what's happening, the generosity and kindness of God appears in Jesus' lifetime to start with, and then, he's saying, appears again as the Holy Spirit is poured out on his followers. And indeed a whole new creation, a regeneration happens. I love that story from a few years back where there was that unfortunate incident that happened in the Fitzwilliam Museum. Do you remember this happening before Christmas sometime? Uh, It must be about 10 years ago now. This lovely set of 17th century Chinese porcelain vases were accidentally smashed when a visitor tripped on a shoelace and uh, fell into them. But a ceramic restorer glued together all the different pieces. One Big vase, the central one, I think, was 113 pieces that had to be glued together. It weighed about 45 kilos in total. It was a three-month job just for that one vase. And um, the exhibition was called Mission Impossible. Only it wasn't impossible. And she did it, the lady that had to restore them. Three vases in total, 4,000 fragments in all that had been smashed. Uh, sorry, it must be 400, mustn't My notes... I put an extra nought in, but it's still impressive. Um, needed to be restored. Together in total, uh, I think it was, they were valued at sort of half a million pounds. It was quite a work of restoration. But of course, the miracle which happens when the Holy Spirit reproduces the character of Jesus Christ in us is more wonderful still. It's, 
It's an illustration, isn't it, though? All the splintering, fragmenting, shattering effects of human sin, which bust up human society into millions of pieces, are at least amongst those indwelt by the Spirit undone. He puts us back together again. His kindness becomes our kindness, amazingly. Now, with that restoration work on the vases, the cracks were still visible, of course. And it's interesting to me that Paul has to tell Titus to encourage the Christians in Crete not to live out the malice and envy of the world around them, because sin will still be our natural tendency, even when we're renewed by the Holy Spirit. Um, If you have the Bible open, you can see the way he talks at the start of the chapter. This is what has teed up the bit we had as our promise of forgiveness. Just look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. There's that note of philanthropy again. All humanity I'm to be gentle towards. That doesn't come naturally to us, and that's why he has to call Christians to live that way, because at one time we too were foolish, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures and so on. I like the uh, little mention of rulers and authorities there. In an election year, we can expect to see plenty of hatred and animosity from one political leader towards another. And, of course, from everybody else in the country towards those running for election, nationally, locally, everywhere. If you think about it, it stands to reason that the higher anyone rises in any organisation, the better the target they are for all kinds of opposition and smears and attacks. So political leaders qualify for that kind of treatment, don't they? And we have to be called to be different amongst Christ's people. And actually, if you think about it, we're not immune from feeling the same sort of resentment of authority in our lowlier circles. You'll see these sort of forces operating in the workplace. You'll see them operating within the church as well. So it's not just in relation to national political leaders, um, in in that sense. We are all inclined to dispense with being gentle to everyone, as he puts it in verse 2. It's always tempting to establish my own position by damaging the reputation of somebody else or to enjoy inciting differences in the fellowship out of a sense of the importance it gives me to create problems. And we can be motivated by all sorts of different things when that happens. It could be malice, It might be my own depression, if I'm that way inclined. It might just be that I enjoy watching the fur fly. Some people love watching a good fight. But the cracks show, even when the restoration work has been done. And I've got to ask myself if my behavior, however principled it might seem to me and others, actually owes more to the old way of living, the splintered fragmentation, 
with the cracks showing very clearly? Or will I follow the philanthropy route which appeared in the life and saving death of Jesus Christ? Kindness incarnate. Amongst Christians for a start, but actually on general release as well. Whether it's a smile to a a shop attendant, a thank you to a waitress, a word of recognition to a small child. It's often where our kindness, I think, will be tested. Kindness is a child's word for the adult who takes time to stop and listen and enter their world and share their little anxieties and troubles, which, of course, seem big enough to them, don't they? Even if they seem small to us. Children always know the people that are kind to them. Those things are often quite small. Very few of us are likely to be called on to uh, rip people out of um, a crash scene from a burning car or whatever, a sort of dramatic gesture of kindness that might come to some passerby. It'll be in the small things, normally, that we're called on to demonstrate kindness. Things that aren't necessarily all that costly in time or money, but they do require a concern for the happiness of those around us. And the encouragement of Galatians 5 is that God is able to produce that fruit in us and to expand our thinking outside of ourselves. Can I give you some more homework um, in the groups just to ponder? I've got a a question or two. I got these questions the wrong way around um, in the 9.30 service, and I ended on a gloomy question, which you're not supposed to do. It's not the way to do it. So I'm going to give you the gloomy question first to try and crystallize your answer to the cheerful question second, okay? Think back over the past 24 hours and just... You can think or talk or do a bit of both. How aware do you think you were of the needs and well-being of the people around you, the people you were rubbing shoulders with in the past 24 hours? How aware were you of the needs and well-being of the people around you? And you might think, well, if I was distracted, what was distracting me? Just ponder that one. That's the gloomy question, because I'd have to admit that I'm not always aware of the needs around me until I'm asked a question like that. So it's quite an uncomfortable question. When you've done a bit of work on that, go for the positive question. What opportunities have you had over the past 24 hours to show others kindness? Okay? Uh, You can expand it beyond the 24-hour period if you want to, to take in the workplace, but think family, home, church. Um, People who aren't in church, could you be kind in that direction? Okay, were my two questions clear? How aware were you of the needs and well-being of people around you? What opportunities have you had? to show kindness. Just take a moment to just talk those over, if you would.
Okay, that can, ca that can carry on over coffee if you want. I've, I've got a, one last question uh, to finish with, which is not needing to be answered now. It's just one for you to take home in your back pocket and think about. And this is not a question from Simon Scott. It's a question from King David. Um, there's a lovely moment in the life of King David where after he had become king, he asked this question. This is the question. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul, to his rival, to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? That's not quite the same word for kindness or equivalent as in our passage, but I think it's a lovely question. And of course, you, you may well know that there was an answer. Yes, there was. There was Mephibosheth, a disabled grandson of King Saul, whom from that point on David treated as his own son, had at the uh, royal table for meals every day. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? And there was. So if you're wondering how to apply this to your life, you could ask a similar question to yourself um, every once in a while. Is there anyone I can show kindness to today? and then do it. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we are humble as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ and the um, matchless, beautiful life he showed 
um, the kindness he demonstrated at every turn. And he was, in one sense, a finite human being like us, tired when we get tired, uh, needing refreshment at times. Yet he gave of himself in that wonderful way. We confess our tendency to just turn in on ourselves and leave other people out of our reckoning. Confess those times when we've been um, unaware of people's needs and very aware of our own needs, possibly at the same time. Please forgive us and may the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus who died for our sins bring cleansing and by his spirit at work in us change us to be a little more like him day by day and we pray you'd help us to uh, put into action where we've identified needs for that kindness to be demonstrated help us to do what we should and what we know we should by your spirit at work in us We pray it, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.